The title of this evening's talk is The Invitation. I'm wondering uh, how many times since you've begun your meditation practice you've had the thought, and it might even have happened since you've been here on the retreat, but you've had the thought, oh, I can't meditate now. You know, too much is going on. Now I've got, um, my mind's really restless. I've got a lot of my mind, you know, my back is really hurting or I've got, you know, knee pain or I've got problems with my family or with my job. Um, I'm just too stressed out, you know. And we believe it. (laughs) And then we don't take the time for our meditation practice. We just keep uh, staying involved in the things that we think we have to do. When I ask you this question, I'm, I remember that that was so true for me uh, in my early years of practice. I remember that fe- I can feel it viscerally in my body, just that thought, I can't practice. I've got too much going on. I can't meditate now. I mean, you know, it's just not a good time, you know. <laughs> and what's implied in this thought, in this idea, is that our conditions have to be just right for our meditation practice to happen. The mind, our mind has to be clear enough. You know, we can't have any pain in our body. We have to have perfect conditions, you know, to, like, like here at the retreat. But we know that that isn't true because already the thoughts are rising anyhow. But we have to have perfect conditions. You know, whatever, whatever it is that we believe has to be in place is implied in thinking that we can't do our meditation practice until certain conditions are just so. But I think a whole different attitude needs to uh, be looked at. And that's what I'd like to talk about tonight, is a possibility of a completely different attitude towards what needs to be in place for us to do our meditation practice. I'd like to begin by telling you um, a story about my visit to the uh, Olympic National uh, Park in the northwest of uh, Washington State, where there's one of the few few temperate rainforests there in the National Park. And I was living, in the last 16 months I've been living in the northwest, I've been living in Seattle, and I really wanted to go. I've been hearing about this rainforest forest, and I really wanted to uh, take a visit there. And actually, I was just leaving. I'm just moving out of Seattle. In fact, I moved out a week ago. So I, I knew that the end of my time was coming there, and I really wanted to get this visit in before I left. So I had a friend who uh, came from England with her uh, nine-year-old son, And this was the opportunity. So we spent five days, uh, just about a month ago, going to the Olympic National Park to the rainforest. And this was a really very, very special experience for me. Uh, It was very, uh, very touching, very deep in many ways when I actually went to the rainforest. I don't know if you've been to this rainforest or some place like this. But as I, as I entered in, as we entered in, um, it was raining, but for, <laughs> surprise, but first, of course, it didn't matter at all because it was supposed to be raining, you know, in a rainforest. But just walking through, 
everything was dripping. Everything was dripping. There's, it's so it's so lush and so full of uh, all kinds of species of plants and moss and fern and lichen and flowers and uh, trees. It's just it's so densely uh, populated with with uh, with with living beings that it was just. I felt like I was just blending right in. Like there really, in some ways, was no difference between myself and the living beings and creatures and plants all around me. Every bit of space was taken up with a plant. And there are plants living on top of other plants because the the ground is so dense. I found out that there are 26 kinds of lichen in the lichen in the rainforest. And there are 14 different kinds of mosses. There are seven kinds of trees. There were spruce and hemlock and fir, red cedar, maple, alder and cottonwood. And it was the ground is so dense with with plants that it's hard for any seedlings to germinate. So they grow when the seeds fall, they grow on top of the fallen decayed trees. So the trees themselves become miniature rainforests with, with trees and plants and ferns and everything. So everything is growing on top of everything else and on top of everything else. And it, there's just an incredible fullness there. Of course, there's the bird, in fact, there are bird songs as well. There are larks and finches and jays. So the, just this, this uh, orchestra uh, soundtrack uh, go as I was walking through the rainforest. It seemed that the rainforest was clearly giving me a gift as I was there. Felt as though I was walking in a cathedral. And I felt deeply a profound sense of the interconnected nature of things there. It was just so obvious. It was so obvious that everything needed everything else for its life, for its existence, that there nothing could uh, live by itself. Nothing could survive on its own, but everything was dependent on everything else. And in that, I felt this, what, what, what really is meant by metta or loving kindness. Another translation of it is deep friendship. And so it's like there's this deep friendship with all things, just so co- coexisting together in the way that they were in this densely populated place. I felt as I was walking that my breath and the breathing of the rainforest were really one and a a real sense of separation dropped away from me. Very profound. But there's a sad part of this story and that's the piece I want to bring in in to highlight uh, uh, the theme I want to talk about tonight. The north road, there's only one road that you can drive on as you go into the rainforest, the north road along the peninsula. And along that road, it is just nearly completely savaged by clear cut. So that there's a sense that as you're driving around, you have to actually go around the Olympic National Park to get there, that the rainforest is deeply endangered by the movement, the coming on of the clear cuts. And you can see that the places that are clear cut 
are not national park. They haven't been protected, but they're national forests, and there's different laws for the forests than there are for the parks. And the clear cuts were so, so brutal that basically, and apparently it's been done 10 years, 15 years, that the large trees, and these are old 200, 300-year-old trees in the peninsula, are, are just cut off and then the stumps are thrown over so that the roots are just sticking out. And there are just acres and acres of just these big 300-year-old tree stumps just lying over on their side. And it's a very interesting experience to have such two such contrasting experiences so close together. One of extreme and nearly exalted and profound beauty, and one of incredibly deep and painful sorrow. And as I was driving, I had to drive to the rainforest and pass all these acres and acres of clear cuts, and then, of course, back through them to get out, and that whole sense of the impingement, the encroachment of how, how delicate and fragile the rainforest is, how it sits there like a little jewel, that I was being asked something. I could feel, I could sense that there was something I was being asked and I shouldn't miss this opportunity. I could have had the view, and this is a commonly held view, that only the rainforest had a gift for me. Only the rainforest was offering me this gift as I opened. You know, of course it's very op- easy to open and and to, to surrender into that exalted, blissful sense of interconnectedness and uh, unity, consciousness, you know, walking through the rainforest. But what about coming out into the destruction, into the hell realm? What happens to my mind then? I could have the view that the destruction is the bad guy, you know, or the enemy, isn't this the common view? You know, the rainforest and the, the delicacy and the fragility and the protection of the rainforest is what's good and the destruction is bad. But doesn't this view, I think that this view really is what leads to more fragmentation and separation. And, and if I hold that view, it just encourages and I could feel the feelings coming on. I could encourages the feelings of anger and rage, and then these feelings could lead to more uh, shame and guilt about having those feelings or confusion and fear and not knowing what to do. I could feel the, the oncoming of that and that deep sorrow that I was experiencing. And I saw that if I was able, if I went with these, that I would lose a sense of listening to a deeper truth within myself where I am connected and I am in a place of wholeness with my being. If I am separated out from myself in anger and rage, I can't listen deeply. I can't go into my heart in a place and listen to what, what, I, what I need to hear there, what, I, what needs to be revealed there. In the past, what I would have done is just blot out in my mind, you know, just sort of in my awareness, blot out the destruction, you know, kind of drive through with blinkers on, not look, not see, pretend it's not there, 
you know, so that in some way I could protect the happy feeling. You know, in a way I could uh, protect that memory so that when I left the National Park, I would just have the memory of the, of the exalted good feeling from the rainforest, but not the sorrow, not the pain from seeing the, the clear cuts. I, the, the assumption there is that my happiness is dependent on having nature in its pristine condition. That, that's, that's my happiness. I, my happiness is, will be destroyed if nature is destroyed. But the gift of the rainforest was showing me the truth of my interconnected nature and the interconnected nature of all things. And if all things are connected, then I'm also connected to the destruction of the rainforest. And if I allow myself to open to this truth, then I can't push it out. It must also have a gift to offer me. And the only way that I'm able to receive that gift is to open, is to keep my eyes open. And so as I did that, as I allowed myself to stay deeply connected to the pain, to the grief, to the sorrow, I received the gift of the destruction, of the ravaging, it, it is, it is, because it's there. It is, it's not past like it was, but it is like a wound on the face of the earth. And going past there, it was almost like a cry for help, asking me to open my eyes. Don't go to sleep. Don't fall into a trance of imaginary happiness. And I could just see how easy that would be to do, just fall back into my trance. But it was like it was, it was so gross that it was saying, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Don't push it away. So in doing that, in not pushing, pushing it away, what I sensed was this awakening of my compassion. My compassion to care for and to protect all living things. Not an anger. Not the anger that, that could have been close to the surface which arises out of a sense of separation of me and the enemy or me and, and what's, what's bad or what's good and what's bad. But a compassion, compassion to want to do something to protect these, the, all, all these uh, endangered living creatures and beings and, this, and the situation there. And it awakened a sense of responsibility so as I'm feeling, as I'm sitting there, what can I do? What can I do? What action can I take so that I am living with wisdom? I'm living from a deep place of the truth of interconnectedness. And surely, and this is what I felt more than anything, surely it awakened a sense of urgency because there's such a clear sign there of the urgency that was needed the attention that needs to be given. And the reminder that as I did that, that practice is not just a good feeling. You know how we want practice, we want meditation to be just a good feeling. And we want to go for that hit. We want to go for that 
experience that's going to give us that. But it's not that. As we deepen into these uh, feelings uh, and these uh, situations that we find ourselves in. So here was the reminder and the reinforcement of a very powerful teaching that we need to open to both the joy and the sorrow. And in doing that, there's the possibility of receiving the gifts from both. And that both have an offering for us. If we can open, if we can receive what is there, what is occurring, that there is a gift waiting for us, some offering. And as we do this, then it allows the wisdom to naturally arise from within ourselves. We're not acting out of some imposed ideas or ideals, you know, well, um, it's good that we protect the rainforest, you know, and kind of get on a bandwagon and then just uh, take action from there. But as... In my case, as I let that in, that sense of wanting to take some kind of wise action arose from a very deep place within my body, within my being, within my heart. It wasn't a mental idea. It wasn't uh, something that came from an outer authority. Something was speaking to me very, very directly. And from there, I can receive the motivation to take some kind of action. So when we use these adversarial situations to enhance our practice or to to feed our practice, this is a very different attitude. It's a very different way of approaching our practice. And from my experience, as I understand this more deeply, that attitude gets stronger and I actually feel more excitement about life and the possibility of entering into life with more uh, openness, with more engagement, with more connection, with more courage, with more strength and more wisdom. Usually, we view these obstacles, we, we call them obstacles, people call them obstacles, we think of them as a nuisance, you know, And we can so easily disregard our practice and then wait until things get better, don't we? I can't meditate now. i got to wait till things get better. Wait till I get out of this uh, clear cut. You know, wait till I get on the other side, you know, get to Port Townsend. Then I can relax and open up again, you know? It's like this is postponement. We're postponing our practice for, for another time. I mean, this is it. This is the time where we need to pay attention. The Dalai Lama said something interesting. He said, if you can't practice when you're suffering because of what it does to your mind, and you can't practice when you're happy because of attachment to your happiness, then there will never be a time when you can practice at all. You know? And so don't we just fluctuate between one or the other. You know, we're either very attached to what's going on and it feels so good and we're having such a good time and, you know, it's like I don't want to just pay attention because it may take some of the fun away or some of the happiness away, you know. 
And then the opposite of what I've just been talking about, you know, my mind's too messed up, you know, too much agitation. When are we going to practice? When's it going to happen? But to really use difficulties to enhance your practice, our motivation must be strong. It has to be strong or we're not going to do it. You know, why would we do it? Why would we turn our attention towards the difficult? Because it seems like it's just inviting more pain, you know. Well, it is in some way, but it's like, it seems like, why should I do that? I have all these strategies to ignore pain and to ignore difficult times. I know how to um, uh, pretend it's not there. I know how to delude myself, to deceive myself, <laughs> to deny, to repress. I know how to do all that. Why not just do that? You know. So we have to have strong motivation for our practice. And for motivation to be strong, our faith needs to be strong. We have to have some understanding, why are we doing this? Why would I, why would I open to the difficult aspects? If there's little faith that transformation is possible, that we can really uh, enhance uh, our, our consciousness and, uh, and open our heart, if we have little faith in that transformation, then it's likely our old habits will just continue. The habits that are actually bringing about the pain that we experience in our lives. And then what's going to break the pattern? How are we going to get out of it? What's, what's going to bring about that shift, that transformation? One persistent habit that plays quite often in our mind is to try to make things better. I mean, it's so insidious, isn't it? You know, it's like we're so conditioned to want to make things better. Our ego, a sense of ourself, wants pleasure, we want comfort, we want security, we want convenience, you know? And the habit is, is to continually seek it out. This one you can see so well on a retreat such as this. You know, as soon as... You know, the, the, the walking meditation starts getting a little boring. Like the thought, mm, I haven't had a cup of tea today. You know, this is actually not a bad time to go get a cup of tea. <laughs> and then we just find the body shifting around, you know, walking to the door and in to get a cup of tea. I know this because I do. I do it. You know, I see it, I see it in my own mind. I just see how persistent my own mind is to not to want to just walk a little more because I may have to start feeling the boredom or feeling the um, unpleasantness in my body or start to pay attention to the agitation in my mind. It's just, ah. and, and, and without the attention, without the awareness, that moment is missed and we find ourselves doing something different. And this is really this habit to want to seek out the comfort, the happiness, the, the temporary happiness Howie was talking so eloquently last night. It really empowers the momentum of our life to move toward pleasure. And in an interesting way, you know, we may even use our Dharma practice for the same reason. To help us feel a little bit more comfortable, a little more secure, a little, you know, happier. One teacher had a wonderful 
name for this. He called it Dharma polish. Just a way to use the Dharma, just to give our life a little more shine, but not going deeper, not really understanding or going for the greater freedom that's available to us. To truly take on this practice, we need to let go of our desire for security. That's a hard one to swallow sometime, you know, because it seems like we, you know, the practice can make us feel more secure, but we need to be careful how we're using that because ultimately we have to let go of everything. We can't hold on to anything if we really want to be free. And letting go of our desire for security doesn't mean that we stop doing things that are important to us. We still do the things that resonate with our values and that are important to us, but we meet life from a different place. We meet life with more openness, with more acceptance for the way things are, without being in conflict with life all the time. So to start, to start this shift in our attitude, we really need to begin with determination. Determination that I'm going to meet life in a new way. And we need to begin before the difficulty arises, before we find ourselves uh, lost and confused in a mass of conflicting and disturbing emotions because then it's hard to set the intention. <laughs> it's hard to say, well, I'm really going to face this now if we haven't already uh, helped uh, clarify what's important for ourselves. So it's important now, if you feel the readiness, to set the intention for this. You can say to yourself something like, I will not hold anything in my mind and heart as an enemy. I will not hold anything as my enemy. I will have an attitude of openness to all of life, even to that which is unpleasant. Setting this intention. You may even say, I will welcome the unpleasant with open enthusiasm. How about that? (laughs) Are you ready? (laughs) This is a test. (laughs) This is a test. You know, as you hear these words, you know, you can let them in and say, what happens? where Where do they go? Where do these words go? What do they touch when you hear them? Are you ready to receive even the unpleasant with open enthusiasm? And it's okay if you're not, but it's important to know, to have a sense of your own readiness so that you can measure and you can have a sense of how you're going to engage, how you're going to meet life. Usually, we're hoping, praying, wishing that nothing goes wrong. You know, I mean, usually it's quite the opposite. Rather than, you know, saying I will meet life with uh, open enthusiasm, whatever it is, you know, we're like saying, please, <laughs> may everything just go perfect or may nothing happen today or, 
you know, we, we walk, we can walk so easily with a kind of uh, way of guarding life or holding our breath so that maybe nothing will happen that will cause any disturbance or conflict. It reminds me of uh, one time when I was, it was a number of years ago, and my niece was about 10 years old, and we went, it was about 15 or so years ago, and we went up on a, a roller coaster, which I, I, it was 15 years ago because I wouldn't do it today, <laughs> but it was a fairly, a fairly steep roller coaster. And I remember we were going up and up. It was the beginning part. We were going up and up and up and up and up. And we're just getting to the top, and she said, she's 10 years old, she said, Hold your breath, then you won't feel anything. <laughs> and I remember after, because of course then I wasn't doing much reflection. But <laughs> afterwards, that very much that very much stayed with me, and I thought, how interesting. In her mind, in many people's mind, hold your breath, then you won't feel anything. And that's basically what we do. So much of the time, and I see myself doing it. It's very one of my my consistent practices where I pay attention to whether I'm holding my breath or not. Because the breath is really what directs us back into the letting go, into the opening. When we take that out breath, it's a way of saying, okay, I will receive what's here. I will open to what's here. But usually, we're not doing that. We want to make sure that nothing goes wrong. One of our fears is that if I actually invite in the unpleasant or the difficult, no matter what, and I don't see anything as my enemy, that I actually believe that I really am bringing in more pain to my life. You know, that if I say, okay, I will invite this. I'm going to take a chance. But that means it's just going to get, everything's going to get worse. You know? Doesn't that happen? You know, when you start to feel and start to sense that, okay, let me try, let me see. But what am I doing? You know, am I just inviting a lot more pain and, and uh, difficulty in my life? And that can be very scary, if, of course, if we think that or believe that. But the interesting thing is that it's this attitude that actually brings about more disruption for us. If we really think that by opening, we're going to bring in more pain, this is, diff- this is a problem. And it's a problem for two reasons. One is that this idea is a very self-centered view. It basically reinforces the idea that I have the power to make things happen. So if I open and say, okay, I'm ready for difficult things to come in, that they're going to happen. It's sort of some, somehow I have like this magic wand that I can just create these situations. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work like that. We're not, we don't have that kind of power. Also, it's superstitious. You know, it's, it is, it's, it's a superstition. It's, it's, it doesn't work like that. You know, it's the same, very similar to the idea that somehow if I keep myself contracted and on guard, I can actually keep difficult parts of life away. It's another superstition. That's not how things happen. That's not how things work. 
Actually, the opposite is true. By inviting in life in all of its forms, all of its joys, and all of its sorrows, it doesn't mean that difficult circumstances are going to increase. But this welcoming attitude, this open mind, is what frees our mind from the pain that arises in the middle of chaos. It's this openness that actually releases the fear and the contraction and this disconnection, the sense of isolation, feeling cut off, and moves us back into a place of connection, engagement, openness, awareness, and most likely will lead us to a great deal of compassion. Essentially, the practice is asking us to be willing to suffer. To be willing to suffer. Otherwise, we're constantly blocking, we're resisting, and this is just reinforcing a dualistic, self-centered view. The view of, well, I want this, I don't want that. I like this, I don't like that. I need this, I don't need that. And how we just keep getting caught in this way of trying to manipulate the conditions of our life and reinforcing the sense of ourself. But it's tricky, you know, when we talk about the willingness to suffer because it can be misunderstood. There's lots of ways that it can... It can bring up misconceptions and false ideas. One is that you might think that, and Buddhism often gets, a, um, gets this um, kind of bad rap, is that there's so much emphasis on suffering that it just brings about more suffering, right? That, you know, we're, we're so, it, we just talk about suffering ad nauseum, and we just fall into these holes, mm-hmm. But, but to really understand the teaching of suffering and the end of suffering, we're not asking you to focus on just the suffering. Because to truly understand it, and just to, just to point out one aspect of this, if we only focus on the suffering, then even the smallest problem is going to cause us anguish because it keeps reinforcing the perception of just looking for suffering. And happiness has no room then, because our mind is is constantly turning towards the suffering element. And we keep putting blame on the external objects, and the whole world starts to feel quite hostile. And, And in that, it becomes another contracted view. So we're not talking about that. All we're talking about is just being open and meeting experience just as it is. And when we do that, then experience moves between the pleasant and the unpleasant experiences. We call it the three feelings, the pleasant feeling, the neutral feeling, and the painful feeling. And life moves back and forth between these, no matter what we do, no matter how evolved, how enlightened, This is the way this nature of being in a human body and a human existence is. So what we're being asked to is just meet this. Meet life. Meet life just as it is. As we do this, we learn how to transform the pain. We learn how to transform 
the um, racking and disturbing, painful feelings that we experience in our minds. And what we transform it into is emptiness and compassion. Emptiness because we see the non-personal nature of it. It means empty of a self-idea. It's just it's what's happening in the nature of things. It's non-personal. It's not personal. And the compassion arises because as we see the non-personal nature and yet that the world and the conditions of this existence are still unfolding in this way, we meet the face of this great mystery. We're touched by the great mystery and we want to help. We, want to, we don't want to keep reinforcing the difficulty and the pain and the unsatisfactoriness. We want to find it some way to come out of it. So great compassion arises in that endeavor. This is our practice. We're learning about liberation. We're learning about transformation, how to liberate pain so that we can live in peace, in ease, in inner contentment. We can live with wisdom and compassion. This is what we're learning, but, but we have to learn you know, some, some, for some reason, for most of us, it doesn't come that easy because we seem to keep falling into our old patterns, our old ways of being. So we need to start somewhere. We need to start somewhere to, to shift, to break that, the rigid patterns that we find ourselves in so that we can come out into a place of great liberation, great transformation. The cultural message that we get continually, and, and how we used some great examples last night, is to be somebody. To manipulate our lives towards success and fame and gain, to accumulating more and more and more. But it's not working. So we come to Buddhist practice and you come here and we say, be nobody. Be nobody. And we feel a great relief in that. We want that reinforcement. We don't really want to, you know, we don't want to have to keep holding up that image of trying to be somebody. And we say, just allow life to be as it is. Step out of the way. Step out of the way rather than stepping in the way and trying to uh, make life into something particular. But yet we don't really know how to do that. We don't know how to let go. We don't know how to come into a place of utter simplicity of our being. So we come to the Buddhist practice, the Buddhist teachings, the Buddhist path, and it is filled with ways, with methods, with with skillful means to how to do that, how to let go, how to transform our minds, how to transform our hearts, and in that transforming our bodies so that we come to a place of great perfection within ourselves. I want to really reinforce this part because to actually say, okay, I'm ready to receive suffering. I'm ready to open to the suffering. We need to have skillful means to do that. We need to have resources there because as I open and I don't have the resources to deal with it, 
I may be thrown back or thrown on my, you know, thrown on my back. The resources are very, very important. And that's what we're doing here. We have, we, the Buddhist practice is filled with, with different methods and skillful means. They say, I think I said, said that the Buddha taught 40,000 different kinds of practices. There is something for everybody, something for everything. We have both the conceptual and the non-conceptual practices. We have practices uh, that we're beginning to teach here, the, the four Brahma-viharas, which the, I mean the divine abodes, the loving-kindness being one of those, the practice of using the mind to enhance loving-kindness in the heart and the mind. The other, maybe Miocean mentioned it today, there's the loving-kindness, there's compassion, there's joy, and there's equanimity, the four practices of the Brahma-viharas. We have the conceptual practices of prayers and aspirations or visualizations. There is a practice in the Tibetan tradition called Tonglen, which is a giving and receiving of, of the suffering uh, and opening to, to healing energies. You can, we can use inquiry where we're asking questions and diving deeper into our, our emotions and our thoughts to come to deeper self-understanding. We can use all these different practices. And here we're practicing the non-conceptual practice, the mindfulness practice or the letting go practice, where we're just looking directly at what's occurring moment to moment without adding much on top of it to see if we can let go and clear out the conceptual overlay, the structures that we bring to experience and just be simple with what's happening. Let it be just as it is. As we practice the mindfulness practice and we start to become more stable at it, we begin to deconstruct our solidified view of things, the way that we we view things dualistically as me and other and me and it. We start to have more of a sense of that, uh, the unified perception of things. And when we drop our constructs and our conceptual ideas, we begin to depersonalize. We loosen that attachment of ourself. And we start to sense into the empty nature, the interconnected nature of all things. This is truly a compassion practice. Because as we engage with life in this way, with full awareness, we begin to let go of our fears and our sorrow for things. Our sorrow that we carry, our fear and our sorrow, begins to transform into compassion. And this is really the the jewel of the practice. Something that is really, it's truly waiting for us to experience the compassion that's in our hearts more and more and more. Sometimes we might think that as we engage with the practice and using these skillful means, that if I get it right, then the difficult feelings will disappear. The emotions will go away. I won't feel this pain anymore. And it's an interesting, you may want to check out and see if this assumption arises for you, that if I was really paying attention, or if I was really 
present, if I was doing this right, I wouldn't be feeling all this chaos within myself. But we're not really asking or looking for anything to go away. We don't want anything to go away. Rather, through the practice of inviting, as we let go of our fear, what we're doing is we're actually liberating the way that we cling to things, the way that we hold on to things and we reinforce the sense of ourself, the sense of our ego. We release our ego clinging to having things the way that I want, you want, we want. And as we release this ego clinging, the negative emotion transforms into compassion because we're opening to life as it is, without rejecting, without clinging, without demanding, without manipulating. And we're strengthening our awareness of the interconnected nature of all things. And in this, we discover who we are. That essentially, I am not different than any other thing in this existence. And as I know that more deeply, the compassion grows. The compassion gets more profound because I don't want to hurt anything that is myself. So, just a reminder to close that the times of difficulty are the best times to practice. This is a very different attitude than having the attitude of waiting or postponing our practice till things get better. And as we do that, we can enter in to our practice as a training, you know, as a training to see how we're doing, you know, how, how, how strong we are, how well we're doing. We use it as a way to, to evaluate ourselves. We don't have to have it right. We don't have to have it perfect. But we take it on as a practice. That's why it's called a practice. And using the times of difficulty as our practice, this is what makes a great practitioner. Let's just sit for a few minutes together. Just as you're sitting there quietly, I'll read this poem from Rumi called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. 
a joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all. Even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture, still treat each guest honorably. They may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice, meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.